Please remain standing with me for the reading of God's Word. Today's scripture is from Revelation 2, 8 through 11. If you have a Bible, we'd love you to follow along with us. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Uh, please feel free to pick one of those up off the table in the vestibule on your way out. Again, our reading is from Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church at Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, again, good morning. Welcome to Christ Community Church. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. It's Good to be with you as we continue on in this uh, series in the book of Revelation. Let me, let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Father, we ask that you would speak to us from these ancient words. God, that this letter, spoken by Jesus, recorded by John, to this ancient church in Smyrna, would also speak to your church here in Olathe. God, would you show us who you are and who we need to be? Help us to learn, to grow, to be open to your Spirit's leading. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What did we get ourselves into? Oh man, when we, when we first had David, he is our oldest. Like, we were not prepared. Okay, like we were, we were excited, but we were, ab- were stupid, just stupid. Like, I don't, I don't know what the, the problem was. Like, it wasn't, it wasn't him. Like, he's a normal kid, right? Turned out so far so good. But like, it had nothing to do with, like, it was all about us. Like, our expectations were just, were just awful in that moment. Like, I clearly remember uh, within a couple of days of coming home from the hospital, like, Kelly and I, like, laying in bed, fetal p- position, all three of us bawling, uh, thinking to ourselves, like, what did we just do? Like, our lives are so comfortable, they were, they were so easy, and, and now we've, like, we've created a monster and then asked him to live with us, right? I mean, look at, look at these idiots here. They look so naive and happy, don't they? Uh, little did they know that we weren't going to sleep for, like, six years. Uh, man, alive. And I don't, I don't know what our problem was. Like, if we were, were we just expecting, like, adding a human into our life would be, like, just making things a little bit harder, a little bit busier, a little bit more complex, like, you know, like picking up a new hobby or adopting a puppy or something, right? It didn't add just one part of our lives. It changed every part of our lives. And it made everything harder. Like, some of you, some of you know, you've experienced that. Like, all of a sudden, like, it, it, made, it made eating hard. It made doing, getting anything done hard, leaving the house hard, being productive at work hard. Like, it made wanting to live hard, right? 
And we actually, I'm not, I'm not making this up, okay? I'm not exaggerating. Like, we actually thought something was wrong with us. We felt like all this, like, guilt and shame. Like, what is going on? Like, what's our problem, right? And so we, we confessed to some parents in our lives that we trust. And, and like, all of them were like, well, well, yeah. Like, of course it's hard. If it's, that, that means you're doing it right. And, I mean, I, first I, just, I wanted to punch him in the throat for not telling us sooner. It's like... Okay, where were you a week ago with that advice? That would have been really, really helpful. But, but more than that, like, as that sort of, like, settled in, it made perfect sense. Like, of course, like, if parenting is easy for you, you're doing it wrong. And yet, how often do we do this with other areas of our lives? And frankly, if I'm, if I'm you know, honest enough to confess, like, how often do I do that with Jesus? Because if I'm, if I'm completely honest, there are plenty of times in my life when I want to I pick up Jesus like I want to pick up a new puppy. You know, just for a minute, feel, a little, feel good, get those warm fuzzies, and then just kind of, you know, put it, put it down, right? I mean, truth, truth be told, like, there, there are times in my life when it's like, I, yes, I want Jesus in my life because I feel better about myself. But not so much Je- Jesus that it actually, like, ruins my plans. You know what I mean? Like that fine balance, enough to feel good, but not so much that it actually changes anything. Which is, like, disastrous, isn't it? Because the reality is, like, when you read Revelation then, like, Revelation does not let us get away with that nonsense. That Jesus will be no one's hobby, right? In fact, the message here is really clear. That if following Jesus is easy for us, you aren't doing it right. Like, if it's easy for you, it's like something you just pick up, like a little puppy, right? Like, then you're, you're, you're doing it wrong. Like, there's something wrong about how you're engaging in your faith. According to Revelation, we just can't get away with that. In fact, as, as Karen reminded us last week, in fact, if you, if you missed that, last Sunday we had Karen Ellis with us. Her message was outstanding. Go back and listen to it on the podcast. It was really, really good. In fact, my daughter Eden said it was the first time ever in her life that she listened to an entire sermon. (laughs) As Karen reminded us last week, like she said so, so powerfully, so beautifully, right, she reminded us that there are hundreds of millions of Christians in our world today, who don't have the option of following Jesus as a hobby, right? Who for them, like, their faith is anything but easy ever. Like, you can't, you can't have Jesus as a hobby in North Korea. It doesn't work. He is everything or he is nothing. And yet, the underground church even in places with great hostility, continue to flourish, thrive, and grow. What do they know that I don't know? Why do they keep following him? Because again, if I'm honest, I think, meanwhile, you and I, we tend to be shocked when it isn't easy. Boy, I thought, I thought it'd be so much, I thought it would just make my life better, right? Everything would be smoother. Like, we're, we're surprised when that, when that happens, when things get harder, and we, we, we wring our hands, fearing together for the church in America. But as Karen said last week, the church isn't dying, it's becoming. And yet many of us think the worst thing that can happen to us is marginalization, reduced power, and a loss of religious liberties. 
I'm not making light of those concerns. But I want to remind us that the view from history and the perspective of the global church and and the picture that we're given here in Revelation of the church for the end of the world makes one thing abundantly clear. We have been the exception, not the rule. Suffering is the norm for the people of God. And the church in Smyrna understood that. That a church for the end of the world suffers. Which sounds like a fun topic for us uh, today, right? I know you're all excited about it. But this is the letter that we have from God's word for us this morning. So turn to Revelation chapter 2 if you haven't already. Now just to remind you, we are in this first section of Revelation. Um, In these first three chapters, we find seven letters by Jesus himself, spoken by Jesus to the Apostle John, written down for actual churches in the first century. Not make-believe churches, not hypothetical churches, but to real people, okay, like you and me, living their lives in, in the first century. This is the second of, of seven of those letters. And of all, the, of all the churches, of all seven of them, I, I think we are probably least like the church in Smyrna. Okay, I don't know what that was, but that was, that was exciting. Okay, so we, we are least like the church in Smyrna. I'm convinced of this because, like, they are suffering, and you and I, we're doing pretty good, right? I mean, if we're completely honest, which is why I think we need this letter so badly. It makes it a very difficult sermon to preach because we're so different from them, frankly, and yet I think we are desperate for their wisdom, and we're desperate for the wisdom of the persecuted church, the global church around us today. We need to learn from them. Why do they keep choosing Jesus? Why do they do it when they suffer, when they know, for many of them, they know that Jesus, embracing him, will ruin their lives? And so let's walk through this. We're gonna walk, it's a short letter. We're just going to kind of walk through these verses. I'm going to try to ask three questions along the way that, that try to connect our time with theirs and what we're dealing with with what they are dealing with as best as I can, um, and we'll kind of wrestle through it that, that way. Does that make sense? All right, so let's, let's jump in. Verse, verse 8. Verse 8, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, okay, Jesus is the one talking, okay, keep that in mind. To the angel in the church of Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Strong words, right? We'll talk about that in a second. But let's, let's set the context a little bit, because Smyrna is uh, the modern-day city of Izmir in, in Turkey. So you can still visit there. You can still see ruins that would have been a part of that city at, at that time. Uh, they're, they're there in, in Turkey. It's a wealthy city, a port city. It's a powerful city. And they referred to themselves in the first century as the first among Asia. Like, they are, they're, they're pretty proud of themselves, okay? They, kinda, they love what they got going on there. Uh, and they, they were known in the first, first century for their love of Rome— and of the emperors, the Caesars. In fact, they were uh, a leader in the imperial cult, okay? Let me explain a little bit what I mean by that. That's not a reference to Star Wars, for those of you going that direction. 
Um, but the empirical, you need a little history lesson, okay? So I'm going to try to draw it back up. You might remember this from your, your Western Civ class. Um, so I'll try not to bore you to death, but it's really, it's really important context. So the empirical, that was the practice in the early Roman Empire of uh, deifying their, their Caesars, their, their emperors. Typically, it was after their death. They would, you know, build temples to them, and they would sort of pray to them. Like, they would, they would name them as gods. And Smyrna loved this. In fact, they had, a, they had a temple to the, the goddess Roma that you could visit. They, they competed against 10 other cities uh, in the first century to be the first to build a, a temple to, to Emperor Tiberius. They loved their Caesars, and they worshipped them as gods. And essentially, I mean, let's not be fooled by that, okay? I mean, we kind of, like, throw primitive people under the bus, like, you know, they're so idiot. They're just worshipping these. But, like, think about this. Like, they, they knew where their bread was buttered, Right? They, they knew that by doing this, they were going to receive special favors from Rome. Like this was, yes, it was a religious move, but it was also a political move. It was a, it was a big deal for them to be able to show their love for Rome. Now, think about if you're a Christian living in Smyrna. They felt pretty uncomfortable with this. And they, they refused to treat their politicians like saviors. They were not about to confuse their earthly nation with the kingdom of God. They, they knew the danger of making a god out of politics, and they refused to do so. Anything less would be a rejection of Jesus. Right? Oh, those primitive people, right? The way they would deify their politicians and put all their hope there. Right? Come on, people, right? If you're picking up a few parallels here, you should, right? I'm laying it on pretty thick. Like, it reminds me of what Mark Twain is thought to have said, that the history, it doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. I feel that here. Because some of us, some of us have joined the American imperial cult. Haven't we? Shame on us. But, but why is, is John so mad at the Jews? Is he anti-Semitic? Right? Like, what's, what's happening here? Well, no, that's not the case. John is Jewish. Jesus is Jewish, okay? But there's, there's growing hostility between the Christians and the Jews, and it was around this imperial cult because the Jews also refused to join into the state-sponsored ideology. They, they wanted nothing to do with it, but they had permission. You know, after, after years and years and years living under the, the Roman authorities, they had permission. They could pray for Caesar without praying to him. It's a big distinction, right? So they could keep their, their integrity, they could keep their worship, they could keep their, their things like they were. But the, the early Christians, many of them were Jews, and so they were sort of grandfathered into this provision. But all of a sudden, the Christians began outnumbering them. Because Gentiles and Jews are starting to follow Jesus, and they know, the Jews know, like, this is putting everything at risk. Like, this is, this is not the same as us, and they're worried that they're going to lose their privileges, and so they quickly separated themselves from the Christians and said, they are not like us. They worship this man, Jesus. Actually referred to us in the early centuries as, as atheists, right? Because we worshiped a guy named Jesus. And Rome, hearing about this, is ticked. Because this new cult of Jesus followers is not approved. And so already, you can see that in the text, already they're experiencing slander and poverty Jesus says. Both of those things. So probably what's happening there is they, they'd lost the protection of Rome, right? And so now they are susceptible to, to mob violence, to looting. I mean, think about the, 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 
the Jews living in Nazi Germany early on, right, and how their, their shops were destroyed and, and ransacked and stuff was taken from them because there's no one left to protect them. That's kind of probably what's happening here. Also, began, they began to lose their businesses because their businesses and that culture were so tied to these trade guilds, which were so tied to the imperial cult and their religions that Christians were beginning to be pushed out. So they're losing contracts, most likely. They're, they're unable to support themselves. They are poor. And yet Jesus calls them rich because they know a different kind of riches. Jesus, in this letter to them, this short letter, basically says, hey, don't worry, Smyrna. It's only going to get much worse. But let's let's pause there for a second before we get to that, because I think we've got something to learn here for us. Because our Christ community, our context is very different, right? We're We're not being persecuted. But here's my question. And I think it stands for us today here in Johnson County. It stands for those living in Smyrna. I think the question behind all of this that I've been wrestling with is what has following Jesus cost us? As I look at their story, the story of believers around the world, I can't help but wrestle. Like, what does it cost me? Because whether you live here or there, following Jesus always comes with the same expectation. The demand for us is the same. Like Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself. Die with me. Suffer alongside me. And he says that to those living in North Korea and to those living in Johnson County. And it may look different for us in this room, but the cost, the call is the same. So what does it cost you? Maybe even just this week. Maybe, like, do an audit of the cost of following Jesus in your life. How's it cost you money? Because you want to you give to those who are hurting. You want to give to the church and, and other things going on. Has it cost you money? Has it cost you time? Has, has it cost you opportunities or the respect of, of others? Are there things in your life that you would have done but didn't do? Or did but wouldn't have done? Because of Jesus. Maybe if you're, if you're dating, it's going to cost you relationships. If you're, if you're a student, let me just say, I don't know if there's a more difficult place right now, right? And I, I feel for that. For you who are students in this room, the adults in your life have a lot to learn from you. Because you, you live this out in ways that many of us don't even experience. It, and you know that if you're going to follow Jesus in your school, it is going to cost you. Church, if our lives look the same as our unbelieving friends, we've got the same values, same standard, same standard of living, right? But you have Jesus and they don't. If it looks exactly the same, like you're not following him. If following Jesus has cost you nothing, you aren't doing it right. And so Jesus Jesus says, I know what you're going through. Do not fear. Which is a remarkable statement, right? You, you, just, you can hear the comfort that that must have been for those believers in Smyrna. Jesus himself says, I know what you're going through. Don't be afraid. I kind of expect that. So he's, Don't be afraid. I'm going to fix it, right? 
I'm going to make it better. Don't worry. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be all right. No, he doesn't say that at all. Look, at, look again, verse 10. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. Don't worry, Jesus says. It's not going to last long. 10 days. 10 days, you can do that, 10 days. And probably there, it's an allusion to, to Daniel chapter 1. We're going to talk about Daniel in just, just a moment in the Old Testament. But like, don't read that and think, oh, it's 10 days. I can do, endure anything for 10 days. That's not what's happening. Like, they're going to get released after this and live happily ever after. The Romans typically only imprisoned people as they waited for execution. You only have to deal with this for 10 days. So just be faithful unto death. And they're supposed to read this letter in church. I mean, imagine what that Sunday morning would be like. Today's scripture reading is from, oh, look at this, a letter from Jesus himself. Isn't that nice? As they begin reading it, I just imagine them looking around the room. Faces of their friends, their loved ones, thinking about themselves. Some of you will be thrown into prison. Some of you are not going to make it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And he says there, like in preparation for him, he's like, I, like Jesus, like I want you to know that this is going to happen, that you may be tested. Do you see that? Which probably makes some of us uncomfortable. It's like, well, that just seems mean. Like, why, is God doing this? Or God is at least allowing this for them? Well, this is, this is where I think we have to unpack that, that reference to Daniel chapter 1 here in the Old Testament, because I think they are connected. There's a lot of parallels between Daniel and, and Revelation. And, and so in that story, there are two things in particular that come out when someone's faith is tested. I think that's the illusion that's happening here in, in Revelation. So in, in Daniel, so again, you've got to go back several hundred years. This is Old Testament, but like in Daniel, Daniel is, and his friends are captured from their home. Israel is essentially destroyed, and they're brought to Babylon. Wicked, evil, terrible Babylon. And all throughout Revelation, Babylon is the metaphor for all that's wrong with the world. Like, it, it, is, it is all that is evil. And, and there in, in Babylon, Daniel and his friends, they, they are facing a similar sort of imperial cult. Not, un, not unlike the church in Smyrna, it's, Babylon is not their home, right? Just, just like those Christians in Smyrna. And, and they're being fed or, or offered the finest foods. But most likely these foods have been like sacrificed for the, the pagan gods of Babylon. And Dana's like, I just, I don't, I don't feel right about that. Like, that's, that's, not, that's not what I want to do, right? Only one god is God. And so Daniel says, and you'll see the, you'll see the, the parallel here, he says, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And if you know the story, they end up healthier and stronger than, than everybody else. Right? It's, it's, it's pretty remarkable. But essentially, two things happen there in their testing. First of all, the testing demonstrates their faith. It, it, it sort of like proves that they actually believe God is, is worth it. And we know, that's, we know that's true for us, right? Like nothing exposes our faith like hardship. Like if you want to know what somebody really believes, like take everything good away from them, right? It, it, it exposes like, I mean, just like I'm a great Christian when everything's going my way, right? I'm nice, I'm kind. You take all that away, like you see me when things are terrible. That's the real test of what I believe. So that's, that's, the, that's the first thing, like, 
Faith or hardship exposes what's in our hearts. And second, though, and more importantly, I think this is really what's, what he's pushing at here. Second, it gives the Babylonians for Daniel and the Romans for the Smyrnans and the people around us, it gives a glimpse of the God who's, who really is God. Not the Caesars. Not, not the, the ones who the Babylonians are sacrificing this food. No, there is another God a bigger God, a God above all gods, that who is actually worth it. And it, it shows a watching world that we, that we believe that, and which is why so often it leads to more Christians when people see, man, that person really believes that Jesus is worth it. In fact, in the second century, uh, an African theologian, a guy uh, who's a church father by the name of Tertullian, uh, he said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. As difficult as that was, right? And you and I, listen, we have so much to learn from the global church. Like, I, I just, I don't, we don't get it. I don't get it. We have so much to learn from those around us. I mean, today, just for example, like worldwide, persecution against Christians is up 14% over last year. It's not, it's not getting easier. It's, getting, it's actually getting harder. And many, many studies show that on average, 11 Christians are murdered Every single day, right now. Eleven, every day. That is our family, family. Like those are our brothers and sisters. People who share a common identity, who, who also take bread and dip it in the cup, right? Who, who have that same claim that we do. Our family. You know, I think about in places where that's happening, places like with our, our partners in Iran. Iran is considered one of the, the deadliest places to be a Christian, one of the most dangerous places to be a Christian today. Uh, yet it's also, this is a baptism service um, through our partners there. Uh, it's also one of the places in which the church is growing fastest. And I hear that and I think, why? Like anybody else? Like, like why would you do that? Is Jesus really worth that? And what happens, though, is when, in those contexts, when people see, man, those people, that person actually believes Jesus is worth it, they begin to consider, maybe, maybe he actually is. I think as well about our partners in, in China. And we, we have relationships with folks in both places who have experienced time in, in prison, right, who've had their livelihood taken away from them, who've experienced deep oppression, but like in China, for example, when Christianity uh, was banned there and all the, the missionaries were, were kicked out and there were only, you know, really, relatively speaking, just a handful of Christians left, everyone assumed that the church would disappear in China. But today there are 31 million Christians in China. 31 million. And, and I know, I, like, I hesitate to even talk about this because it's, like, if, if you're like me hearing this, it's like, well, okay, but like, what do I do about that? Like, my context is so different. How do I compare myself? Like, I don't even, I don't even know what that looks like. And yet, the, the one question that keeps, I keep going back to for this is, we're all going to face a test at some point. All of us. And the ultimate, the ultimate test we're going to face is death. And so are you preparing to die? Are we preparing to die? Yeah, it may not come for any of us in this room because of our faith. But that test is coming one way or another. And so are we learning, am I learning to die daily even now? 
killing my pride, my greed, my anger, my selfishness, putting that to death, letting Christ live in me instead, practicing daily for the final exam. Because none of us knows when that's going to be. But the reality is, if we aren't dying for Jesus now in the small stuff, what's to say that you're going to die for him in the big stuff? For the stuff that really matters? Who's to say you'll pass the test? Let me give an example of this. The, The first Christian martyr recorded outside of the New Testament, so you follow on that, so New Testament's over, right, done, and then the first one that we actually have records of, historical records of, was a guy named Polycarp. Uh, He was uh, a bishop, uh, and he was burned at the stake at 150 AD. So not, it's just a few decades after after this letter was written. But guess where he was a bishop? Smyrna, interestingly enough. In fact, tradition has it that Polycarp was discipled personally by the Apostle John. So there's a possibility he would have been in his 20s uh, when John wrote. And so it's, it's possible that he was sitting in that church when he heard these, first, these, letters, this, these words first read. Like, he may have known some of the early victims. I don't know. But what's so remarkable about Polycarp's story is that when death came for him finally, like, he welcomed the soldiers into his, into his house. Like, he knew they were coming. He knew why. And he was, like, gracious, hospitable to them. He just said, Can you just give me one hour to pray. And he was so gracious to them that the soldiers actually regretted that they'd come. That they had to do their work. And so they brought him in. And uh, the proconsul brought him into a stadium, like crowded with people, and tried to convince him to deny Christ. It's recorded like this. Once more, the proconsul urged Polycarp to swear by Caesar. This time, Polycarp replied, Since you pretend not to know who and what I am, Hear me declare with boldness, I am a Christian. And if you wish to learn more about Christianity, I will be happy to make an appointment. Furious, the proconsul said, Don't you know I have beasts waiting? I'll throw you to them unless you repent. And Polycarp answered, Bring them on, then. For we are not accustomed to repent of what is good in order to adopt that which is evil. And next, the proconsul threatened to burn him alive. And to this, Polycarp replied, You threaten me with fire which burns for a little while and is soon extinguished. Think about everything that he's implying there. It's just just long. You're dead. It's fine. Soon extinguished. You do not know the coming fire of judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. What are you waiting for? He did. Burned him to death right in front of all those people. Back in 150 AD. Polycarp passed the test. But how do you think he did it? By cramming the night before? Like in those, those final minutes, you know, as you used to for the, the, the exam at school, right? Just, no. Polycarp lived his life He was known to be a man of prayer, of fasting, of the scriptures within church community. Like, he died daily for decades. And his life was so saturated with grace that that when the day, when the final test came, he was ready. I know it's not going to look the same for us, but 
How are we preparing? How are we dying daily? Because again, go back to the church that Sunday in Smyrna when they heard this letter. Like, I, I can't help but wonder how many of them just walked out, right? Like, nah, I'm good. Like, Jesus is, yeah, not interested, right? Uh, how many of them just sort of snuck out the back? And I realize for many of us in this room right now, some of you are thinking the same. Like, if this is what Jesus demands, I want nothing to do with him. I understand that. And yet, why does the church continue to grow in places that are so hostile? Why do they continue to believe that it's worth it? We'll go back to to verse 10. Jesus says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And remember, remember who's speaking, right? It's not incidental. The title that Jesus gives himself as he started this letter was the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So, so how can this church or any persecuted church or any of us in this room, how can we face death without fear? Because we know the one who went first. Who went first and made it out okay. Who conquered the grave. Who walked through death on our behalf. And those who trust him are part of that victory in the second death, he says, cannot touch us. Do you know that sounds probably weird, like the second death, what does that mean? It's like, I thought I only had to die once. Sounds awful, right? But this is a, a metaphor, again, in Revelation that's used for, like, the final death, like the judgment of, upon all that is, is broken and, and evil. So the first death, that's when your heart stops. But ultimately, for those who are apart from Jesus, the real death, the one that you should be afraid of, is the one that comes later. This, this final judgment. But it doesn't have to be this way because Jesus invites all of us to, to say yes to him, to participate in his life, death, and resurrection. And if that describes you, you have nothing to fear. But it's weird how, it's weird how Jesus phrases it, right? A crown of life, he says. Like he says, like, the one who conquers. It's like so weird that Jesus uses those terms to talk about Christians dying. It looks like defeat, not victory, right? But you see, Jesus doesn't measure wins in arguments, public policies, or personal comfort. His scoreboard is, are we being faithful unto death? Because the story of Revelation is that you and I, we overcome by dying. That we win by losing. I mean, do you want to know one of the things that worries me most about the American church? Many of us are more afraid of losing our religious freedom than we are of losing our witness. We would rather hold on to power than let Jesus' power shine through us. We're more afraid of oppression than irrelevance. More afraid of losing the next election than we are of losing Jesus. Sure, there are things to be concerned about, and we have to be involved. But you and I, as Christ's people, we should not worry so much about how our culture thinks of us. Or, or the growing hostility surrounding us that is sure to increase. We should be praying for faithfulness unto death. And if you're unconvinced, I don't blame you. If you're, if you're sitting there, is this really what it means to follow Jesus? 
Like the ultimate question is, will he be worth it, right? Will Jesus be worth it? It's a fair question. It's a, it's a question a young woman asked herself in Iran. Uh, one of our pastors got to meet this individual. She's uh, part of one of our, our partnerships there. Um, got to hear her story. And she, was, she was thrown into prison for sharing her faith. And she was put in, like, just gen pop, right? So there's, like, murderers and, you know, gangsters, like, just, and she's there for sharing her faith. You just imagine what that had to have been like. And, and she talks about how when she was, she was blindfolded, she was first thrown into her cell, and her cell was so small she couldn't stand up and she couldn't lie down. It was too short and too narrow. I mean, essentially, it was a grave. And she felt like she was dead already. But as she describes that moment, she talks about that. In, she got there, and she just she cried out to God. Like, why am I, why am I here? Like, what is, what is this for? And I, I can only imagine that she had to wonder, is, could, could, could Jesus actually be worth this? Where could there possibly be a victory? But then she says it was like the prison walls disappeared, and she saw Jesus there with her. I don't know all of that means, but she heard him call her by name and say, do not fear, I am here for you. And so she began sharing her faith throughout the prison. In prison for sharing her faith. Like, she just couldn't stop doing it. The guards told her to quit. She just, she wouldn't. She, re- she refused. She led a murderer to Christ. Like, the most notorious woman in the prison embraced Jesus' forgiveness. A guard became a Christian. Like, she was, like, literally, she was baptizing women in the prison shower. Now think about that. If you're, if you're in Rome trying to squash this thing in the first century, if you're, if you're in Babylon trying to, to push Daniel and his friends aside, if you're in China or Iran or any place around the world where this happens, or the, or the things that you and I experience today, like, like, what do you say to that? We send you to prison, you convert to prison. We put you to death and you multiply Christians. And this is, this is Jesus' point. When you and I overcome by dying, We cannot be stopped. And if that same Jesus who took a scared, jailed woman and changed a prison, if that same Jesus lives in you and me, as his people, then there is no end to the good that he cannot accomplish through his people in our world. And whatever your Monday looks like, if that Jesus lives in you, then you can be that person in those places. Governments cannot contain him. Persecution cannot stop him. Death couldn't hold him. You and I are overcomers. That's one of the main titles for for us as Christians within the scriptures. We are overcomers. Which means we can be faithful unto death. We can be his church for the end of the world. Let me pray. Father, we have family. Iran and China, North Korea, Somalia, Afghanistan, all over the world who are suffering right now. Unimaginably. Because of their love for you. Help us remember them, pray for them, love them, support them, encourage them. and Help us to learn from them, to know how to be like them. And would you even now comfort them, give them faith to endure. And Lord Jesus, we don't know what's in store for us here, but many of us are afraid, understandably. Give us courage. Help us act and love and serve from faith, not fear. Whatever may come, we thank you for our freedom. We ask for your continued protection. But even if not, we will trust you. Help us count the cost. 
Help us prepare daily for death in such a way that our family would grow. Give us a bigger family, Jesus. And help us believe that you are worth any cost. The one who conquers, who who died and came to life and conquers through death. Thank you, Jesus, for welcoming us into your family. And now, Jesus, as we come to your table together, we pledge our allegiance to you, King Jesus. Meet with us now as we come. And would you even use this moment to knit us together with believers in this room, yes, and across our city, but even across this world, across time and space, with every believer everywhere who has ever taken bread and taken the cup as our joy, our hope, our redemption. We love you, Jesus.